Hello, this is Ruslan Malinovsky. Hello, this is Roman Yeremchuk. And you're listening to Ukraine Plus Football. He's heading east, he's heading east, he's heading, football's heading east. He's heading east, he's heading east, he's heading, football's heading east. He's heading east, he's heading east, he's heading, football's heading east. He's heading east, he's heading Hello, welcome to Ukraine Plus Football, the home of the number one English language podcast on Ukrainian football. I'm your host, Adam from Ukrafot24, and I'm joined by my excellent co-host, the number one source of Ukrainian football in English, Mr. Zoria Londonsk, Andrew. How you doing, mate? I'm very well, Adam. Um, slightly tired, just arrived in Bucharest, but good to go and good to debrief on uh, Ukraine versus Netherlands. Certainly is, certainly is. And the English-speaking voice of Ukrainian football, Ray, how are you doing today, mate? Just fine, Adam. Pleased to have our uh, recording again and looking forward to it. Uh, it certainly is. Before we get started, big shout out to Jack Coop for the intro music. Make sure you check out his band uh, Ryland's Heath on Spotify. Really do appreciate the work there, Jack. Lots of respect for you. But today... We are very honoured to have Mr. Clive Tildesley with us in the studio, everyone. Obviously, for those of you in the UK know Clive very well, but those in Ukraine, Clive's commentated for ITV for almost 30 years, if I'm correct, with a brief interlude at the BBC. Uh, as many of you know, as Ray was telling us uh, off-air just, uh, he's been the voice many editions of the FIFA series for EA Sports. And more recently, I know you've uh, joined CBS in the US to be the lead commentator of the Champions League games. But most importantly for us, and it really is, you were the lead commentator last night and we're really looking forward to getting your views on the game and on Sabina in general. But say thank you for joining us today, Clive. We really do appreciate it. How have you been enjoying the tournament so far? Well, that was the most thrilling game of the tournament uh, so far. Have I enjoyed it? I, I probably enjoyed England's victory earlier in the day uh, even more. I always think, and uh, you know, I felt this when uh, I was in Ukraine in 2012, that um, it's kind of important for uh, a major football tournament for the host nation to perform well, at least to start well. Um, I think it's, um, you know, it keeps a connection uh, between the tournament and, and the locale and obviously in in normal circumstances we would not be playing in in several nations around Europe but just one maybe two as we did in in 2012 so it is it is very important um, for what is to, to a large degree an England-based tournament certainly a tournament that's going to finish in England um, for the for the, uh, the the national team here to to start well as indeed it was um, uh, when I was in Gdansk, um, was it? There was the first game in Donetsk. I can't remember now. I, I, I certainly commentated on games in Kiev and Donetsk. Yeah, the Kiev one was the so far only win that Ukraine have ever had at a Euros. Uh, Shevchenko's double was in. Kiev. Ah, of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. I did, I did cover that game, which was the game that was delayed. That was France against Ukraine. Uh, it wasn't the Ukraine game. In, I was, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, it in, was, it was. in Donetsk with the, the big thunderstorm. I enjoyed my time in Ukraine. I, um, I visited all four uh, venues, worked in all four venues. Mm -hmm. um, 
all very different for, for a Westerner visiting the nation for the first time. Um, you know, Lviv felt almost, England played in Lviv, um, felt almost Austrian. It almost felt like you're in the Tyrol. Kharkiv definitely didn't. <laughs> um, <laughs> Kiev was a surprise, you know, the, all the parks in the, the city centre. And uh, Donetsk was very different in 2012 to, to what it is now. But um, I probably spent more time there than in any of the other three cities. And I enjoyed my time there. I, had, um, I was a bit younger then. I had a little run. In the morning, kind of um, <laughs> down the avenues, which all, uh, all had a little park area, which you, you run through from square to square. Um, of course, the stadium was state-of-the-art. Um, the airport was so state-of-the-art, it wasn't quite open. <laughs> it's, and it's certainly not open now. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I, you know, I am kind of fascinated when I follow the story, particularly of Shakhtar, as they sort of come onto our radar in Champions League games. Mm. You know, the, I mean, the story of that football club, the modern story has really never been chronicled properly. And it mm -hmm. is one of the most amazing tales in, in, in modern day football, how um, a major club, which has been based in four different cities in what are we now, you know, uh, less than yeah. a decade and, and remains successful. So I, I do have a fascination with Ukrainian mm. football. Thank you for that. It was uh, it was a memorable tournament. Christ, nine years ago. No, it doesn't qualify. Yeah. But it was it was it was it was a great time. I think it was when I I really did first fall in love with the country over that period, and I never left. I never <laughs> left. <laughs> anyway, Andrew, you did leave. You did leave. You were in Amsterdam over the weekend, weren't you? What was the atmosphere like there, mate? Yes, I was. Uh, well, it was quite understated to be honest it wasn't until match day when you started seeing fans in orange all around the sort of city center um very hot it was uh, probably around 25 degrees got a bit sunburnt myself uh, there was a nice little ukrainian meeting place for ukrainians sang a few songs before the match headed over to the stadium um in this little sort of convoy thing with ukrainian flags out the window the police stopped us uh I wasn't wearing a seatbelt and I got fined. I don't know how much that fine is, but we'll find out when, um, <laughs> when I get home, I guess. And um, yeah, and then off to the stadium. Not, not that many Ukrainian fans, as I already mentioned, they weren't allowed through the border. The majority of them were turned away in Kyiv because of COVID restrictions and that sort of stuff, which, you know, begs the question why certain host cities are allowed to, you know, are still hosting them. It, it's just a bit weird. And in general, Amsterdam, all the bars shut at 10 p.m. local time, which is the which is just the start of the first half of late kickoffs. So you couldn't actually watch the second half of late kickoffs anywhere over the few days I was there, other than back at the hotel on the TV. Um, however, the red light district was open all hours, so I don't really understand what they the rules are. Were they showing the match, Andrew? <laughs> so, thank you Clive <laughs> no I don't think they were <laughs> no, I mean Clive were you surprised with Ukraine last night how they set out to attack Netherlands right from the first whistle and uh, I mean for you what were the key moments in the game I thought the first 10-15 um, minutes of the game was a surprise full stop. Um, I hadn't expected Netherlands to be anything like as assertive. Um, I'd watched their two uh, pre-tournament friendlies. And, you, you know, you have to remember the backdrop to the game is that for Frank de Boer to play with 
three at the back, five at the back, whichever you uh, call it, was against all of the traditional principles of, uh, of Dutch football to the point where a Dutch training the day before, um, a small plane flew over the session with a banner tailing out at the back, not with any, um, you know, sack the coach or get rid of the federation or any political statement, not, you know, don't take the knee or anything. It was play 4-3-3. I mean, somebody had hired a plane, you know, to send this message to De Boer. And, um, you know, rather stubbornly, he, he, he went against that. But whereas we'd seen very much 5-3-2 in the, in the friendly games, we saw 3-5-2 last night. And uh, Dumfries and Van Harnholt, who, were, who was a bit of a surprise selection anyway, were midfield going on attacking players uh, from the start. I don't know whether that caught Shevchenko by surprise. I, again, have watched the um, certainly two of the three Ukrainian warm-up games. I felt they played with tempo and intensity. It didn't surprise me that they um, made a front foot start to the game. But, but what we had was the first 10 minutes looked like the last 10 minutes. It, 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 I mean, it, it was kind of crazy, um, a slightly chaotic start to the match. And um, I just think that... It's, it, I sometimes liken football matches to boxing contests. And whereas we were expecting at the start of a 12-rounder, the two fighters to come up with their hands up and just to kind of... They, they started throwing big haymakers at each other from the beginning. And sometime in a fight like that, one fighter never quite clears his or her head. And I don't think Ukraine ever quite cleared their heads from, from the start. It didn't help to lose a player so early. That almost, mm. obviously... Um, is is a little disorientating. Marlos didn't work. He just it, it was almost as if the game had a little bit too much speed and and pace for him. I actually thought the second substitution made a big impression on the game. I thought he was very impressive. Um, I felt that Ukraine were very much in the game at half time. I mean, they owed a lot to Bushchan and indeed to Dumfries missing a chance. But I felt that they looked dangerous on, on the, on the counter-attack. I felt that they carried a threat in the first half. But the first 20, 25 minutes of the second half, they were flat. And not only did they fall two down, they, you couldn't really see where a goal was coming from. And two extraordinary goals in their way. Then you, you would expect the momentum, really, to, to be with the team that's just scored the two goals. But they didn't quite go on from there. Um, you know, that would be my reading of the game. I have probably more reflections on looking back with what we know, but that's kind of how the game played out. It it started full of surprises and it kept on providing us surprises. Or It almost had a mind of its own, the game, so that it, it almost became difficult to analyse tactically because it just seemed to be running a fever from the start. And um, and I think the right team won. I think, you know, if, if, if you would like a boxing contest, to score it round by round, who landed the most punches, who looked the most dangerous, that team would be Netherlands. But I say Ukraine were right in it at half time. Twenty minutes into the second half, they looked right out of it. Thanks for that. I mean, Ray, were you were you happy with the performance overall? What were the this sort of disappointing moments for you? Quite a twist of the tale that was, I have to say. Uh, albeit we lost all the possession uh, in the midfield area to Wijnaldum and. Uh, Whoever was still playing with them, I only noticed Ronaldo. To be honest, uh, Zinchenko and Malinovsky. Frankie, 
<laughs> Frankie de Jong. Yeah. He only cost about 80 million euro. So Zinchenko and Lewandowski, our star players, they uh, did not do very well in there. And um, they left Mikolinko on the flank against two players uh, most of the time. And Sidorshuk rushing all over, making mistakes. So the class of certain players made a difference on the scoreboard for us. Not the players we were hoping on, obviously. Uh, yet crucial for the team at the critical moment. Those were Yarenchuk and Jan Molinko, a class uh, finish from, from an old school of his, trademark finish. Um, I would say that there was a clash of philosophies among the coaches in, uh, for Ukraine, was obvious. The, we probably would have seen it in the warm-up games if we had uh, more quality opponents, but in there uh, yesterday we saw that um, our attacks uh, were wasting a threat, uh, losing the threat in the very uh, final third. Uh, like when you need uh, to shoot straight on from the pass, you pass it further to the flank and the attack is just flopping. Uh, so the clash I'm talking about is uh, we used to play um, possession and control of the ball and tactical um, advantage uh, back in the day when we qualified to the Nations League and so on, we, we, we beat Portugal. But after COVID, we had to switch to our classic wingers uh, formation when Yermolenko and Zubkov, who got injured on the 10th minute, uh, were the key men. Marlos didn't replace him that well. That um, situation with uh, the tactics was because we didn't have much time to prepare and uh, obviously we didn't have uh, decent opponents on the way. So uh, I would say that um, I'm happy for the goals coming from, I don't know, luck and uh, class, as I've been pointed out previously. But uh, further, uh, I mean, there's still this last goal from Bushan, who was played a great game. He gave the ball straight away to the flank, to the opposition, and there was a cross and a finish. That's it. Mm. So um, I can't say I'm happy. I'm just, uh, was, I was really uh, amazed by the outcome that took five goals scored and we come back. That's quite, you know, um, well, it makes you want to watch the next game. <laughs> it certainly does. Now, you mentioned Bouchan there. And I know, Andrew, you've been busy talking about Bouchan across social media land. Uh, this morning. What was your take on his performance? Sort of a, a tale of two halves. Absolutely. He looked like a world beater in the first and then, you know, typical for Ukrainian keepers, he went from hero to zero, essentially. Okay, he wasn't that much at fault for the first goal, but, you know, he parried it out straight to Wijnaldum. Maybe he could have done slightly better at, for that result. Okay, and that also had an impact from McCollum called being rinsed by um, Dumfries. Second goal, he couldn't do much about really. That was more defensive uh, mix up there and sort of the deflection clearance thing from Matt Fienko. And then the final goal is sort of, it's sort of been up for debate on Twitter with some of my followers. They've been saying that it's a bit harsh to blame it on Bushjan sort of from a save point of view, but I think he was caught flat-footed. He could have easily got a strong hand to that. It was inside the post I mean a, a yard inside the post and you probably should have done better and yeah it's just one of those it's just one of those things there's not there's never really a hundred percent trust in Ukrainian goalkeepers and I'm not really sure what sort of school it comes from but uh, just something about it and something it's once again sort of Bushjan's 
proneness to crosses that has dealt another sort of blow to the team. He's still going to stay as the number one keeper. Uh, no point in changing that up because that's just going to create more problems. And I mean, hopefully he has a good game against North Macedonia, but we'll see. I mean, Clive, you've watched, I don't want to have a guess how many games. I mean, we're talking there about the third goal before even the cross come in. What would what were you expecting Bouchon to do when he had the ball at his feet? Pass it out to the corner flag yeah, or any, move it anything but what he did. Um, <laughs> and, and maybe you know the nature of the second goal had had, had affected him. Um, mm. I, I mean, it obviously, it, it was borderline, and and I don't think there's any doubt at all uh, that Dumfries would have been ruled offside. Uh, you know, had he had uh, had just the, the fractions went with. Um, Netherlands in in that instance. So he was he was uh, he made outstanding saves in the first half. I mean, I commented on it that it was perceived to be a, a an issue position, a problem position for Ukraine coming into the tournament, and it looked as if they you know discovered a goalkeeper. Um, <laughs> and I, and I, I agree completely with Andrew. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, from what I know of Piotrov, I saw a little bit of him in the final friendly. He looked old. I saw Trubin's error against Bahrain was he played in the uh, so and he's very young. So it, it seems to make sense to uh, to show some faith in him now. And Ukraine are very much in this tournament. I mean, uh, teams are going to get through with three points. So, you know, there is a possibility. But probably in in defence of him, I, I was very interested in in uh, Zabani and, and Mikolenko because of what I'd heard of them. They looked young players to me on uh, last night. Good young players, but young players. Young players who might make errors in big situations. And... Uh, and I think it's probably more important to to Shevchenko now how they come through the next few days. They, they look confident types. Um, they've had good seasons. They are being linked with big moves. Uh, I'm not suggesting that's gone to their heads in any way, but I, that was a bit of a knockback for them last night. They both made errors at key times. And um, and how they recover from that, um, whether Shev decides to go with Kripsov, maybe just, just to try to to put an old ahead. I, I felt the best player in the back four last night was Karavai, which probably tells you something, a bit more experience, you know. Um, I thought Zinchenko had a had a good game. Uh, I thought that Malinovsky had a poor game. The free kick was terrific for the second game. I was very disappointed with him. Mm-hmm. I thought he played safe a lot. Um, d- didn't look as if he had quite the energy, really, to uh, compete with that midfield with Daron and, and De Jong and, and Wijnaldum. So I thought he was um, he was a bit of a letdown for me. Um, as I said, I think Shaparenko made a real impact uh, when he came on. I wouldn't be surprised if he didn't start the game, if they didn't find a place for him. Um, I know about the issues with the anchor midfield. Um, you know, I guess if, if Stepanenko's had a little bit more training, feels a bit fitter, that that might make a difference. Sidorchuk made some good interceptions at the time he had, but he looks a bit one-paced. He doesn't. Uh, he looks more of an interceptor, a defender rather than a prompter, and somebody who's really going to get you moving. And given that Malinovsky didn't really function on the night, Sinjanko was almost playing them on his own back there. But there was a, a telling moment. You probably saw the close-up midway through the first half, and you know Sinjanko is a reasonably experienced player. But when he was telling everybody to calm down, that was the Manchester City experience. That was somebody who said, "Hey, I played in these games before." If you're not careful, this is going to pass you by. You know, you're going to get back to your hotel room tonight and it's going to seem like it was all over in five minutes. Now, just take a breath, take a moment, and let's try to play our way into this game. And, and they never quite, whether it was the youth at the back, 
whether it was the lack of real athleticism up front. I think, you know, Yaremchuk is a forceful player. I think the truth is Yarbalenko, despite the brilliance of the goal, is now in the autumn of his career. Uh, so whether the, the whether you can regenerate with a little bit more of that Shaparenko energy, a more attacking threat, and then maybe steady it at the other end, perhaps by bringing in Stepanenko, perhaps by bringing in Kriptsov, just to calm things down a little bit and, and, and act out what Zinchenko is asking for, just to play with your mm-hmm. heads rather than your hearts a little bit more. Because you're going to go into the next game favourites. You weren't favourites last mm-hmm. night. But you're going to go into the next game forever because you've got to win that game, really. You've got to find a way to win that game. And that's possibly going to require a little bit more concentration than they showed last night. Claude, can I ask you about briefly about Zubkov? Now, uh, you said you mentioned that you saw a, a couple of the warm-up games and what you saw in the, that sort of first 10 minutes before he went down. I don't think there's a lot of subtlety about him from what I've seen. Mm. Um, but, um, you know, he's a very different kind of player to... Uh, Yarmolenko or Konoplyanka, you know, but he, he is, he is, he's more, he reminds me a little bit of Rebic, you know, the Croatian's got that s- strength and power and almost, um, it's a sort of a youthful vigour. Uh, and there was, I think that was missing. Certainly Marlos has got none of that. Uh, he's old enough to be his dad, really, isn't he? I mean, he looks anyway. I, you know, I, there are certain games, and listen, it may yeah. well be that if you dominate possession against North Macedonia, Marlos is what you need. It, it may be that you need a little bit of subtlety and I don't know what kind of game it's going to be, but against Netherlands in a very energetic match, uh, and, and it was a warm day, Andrew, but it, nothing like the heat, for instance, that England and Croatia played in in the afternoon at Wembley. It had cooled down a little bit in the evening and the game had, a, had more tempo, more, more pace about it. And it was a runaway match anyway. So you kind of needed, I think, a little bit more physicality in the team uh, than you have, particularly in attacking positions. Very well, Paul. Thank you for that, Clive. You've mentioned that you see Ukraine coming out of the group, but how how much potential do you see in the team? Which you've mentioned briefly about the youth. Um, do you see them getting past the last 16 if they get out of the group? I thought they'd win last night. I thought you'd win the game. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I, based on what I'd seen in the warm-up internationals, because the Netherlands looked very stilted, very ill at ease with their formation, in their warm-up games, and because I saw you, you know, getting into games right from the outset in your warm-up games, I, I, I felt actually that it could turn that the fans, it, it can work for or against you playing at home uh, in front of your own fans because they can get nervous quickly. And I, I thought that might happen uh, last night. And, and in fairness, it did, you know, it was a, it was a far more adventurous, far more positive Netherlands performance than I'd anticipated. So. I've come away from the game uh, feeling that, I, you know, I think to progress really in, into the last 16 would be, um, I mean, you may not see it in those terms, but, uh, you know, I think to be one of the, the best 16 teams in Europe at the moment would be respectable. And then you never know. I mean, if, if you get out of the group, uh, you could draw Finland, for instance, at the moment. It looks like Finland are going to get out of their, gr- their group. They've got three points we didn't expect them to have. You know, anything, I, can't, I haven't looked at the draw and how it might pan mm-hmm. out. But, I mean, you could get a, a match which you can win. We, we've seen enough knockout games which have finished nil-nil and gone to penalties. So it is possible to progress in a competition. But in terms of, actually, the potential that I had read about, and particularly in those young defenders, that I'd seen in what is clearly a unified squad, you know, the story of Logan on the shirts and stuff, all of that kind of 
uh, vibe, that narrative suggests that, you know, Shevchenko's got them all together and pointed in the right direction. I just wasn't sure that there was, there was enough quality that was ready to go. I think, um, you know, in another two years, Mikolenko and Zavani will be different players. But last night, they just looked a little naive to me. So, Ray, uh, looking towards Thursday, you know, how, how are Ukraine going to move forward going into North Macedonia game? How does Shevchenko pick up the boys after that? Yeah, as I said previously about the clash of philosophies, I mean, it's obvious now that they will keep up with the uh, winger's formation and uh, that would be the um, lack of uh, our half spaces, uh, which are Zinchenko and Malinovsky and maybe Shaparenko as he uh, went, uh, went on quite well uh, with Netherlands. It might be a slight change in that position, uh, including uh, the Stepanenko coming out uh, instead of Sidorchuk, but uh, I'm not sure... I mean, Honestly, not sure about that, although I wasn't impressed with Sidorchuk that much. So um, that would actually be um, this uh, build-up. And North Macedonia had scored their own goal, their, sorry, their goal on this tournament, their very uh, first goal, I would, I'm pretty sure, in the big tournaments. It was, of course, Goran Panther. And now they, you know, they felt it. They felt the smell and they're hungry for more. And this is not good news for us as uh, we know that this second game would be crucial for us and uh, this would not be the decisive one, but definitely not easier than Netherlands from uh, that, from what we've seen uh, the other day. And um, it's uh, I would like to see more from our leaders, as I've said previously, from Zinchenko and Malinovsky, as our huge hopes are for them. Um, in, also, the youngsters from the back, um, it should go fine, but yet again, that's pretty much what we've been uh, preparing for with uh, our warm-up games. So uh, that's going to be probably a historical match. Oh, yes. I mean, Andrew, we've spoken a lot over the last sort of six months of second-game syndromes and all of this, and we remember, you know, the sort of dark day of on in 2016. Any danger of that catching up with us again? You'd hope not. I mean, there's already the market change that they've scored the two goals, so... It can't be any worse than Euro 2016, even if Ukraine do do lose all of their matches. But I mean, just based on that comeback, okay, they they didn't have enough to beat the Netherlands. Just I think mainly to do with the quality of the side. But ultimately, you know, in the grand scheme of things, Ukraine are a stronger team than North Macedonia, so they should have enough to deal with them. And then it will come down to that final game, which will be like a bit of a final. Uh, to see who makes it through to the next round potentially or even if you know top whether you finish second or third and what you get rewarded with as a result of that in the next round so it's all sort of up in the air but yeah the North Macedonia game is key because one win could potentially be enough thanks for that now one last little thing just slight change of tact we want to ask you about the book Clive (laughs) because it's yeah it's a fantastic read, of course. Just in particular, whilst the book was being put together, you know, what were the your sort of your favourite memories, your favourite tales as you've looked back throughout the career that that sort of really popped up? And was there any sort of story, any memory that you wanted, you kind of wish now had gone in the book, and didn't make, didn't didn't go in? Well, I started to write a book um, in the spring of last year and obviously the world was changing in the spring of last year. Um, I'm not sure that it has changed back <laughs> significantly yet, but um, 
we suddenly had time on our hands and it was it was something that i wanted to do i i didn't feel as if my life was interesting enough for for an autobiography or at least the bits that i would prepare to write about are not interesting enough maybe um some of my personal <laughs> stories which we never going to make we'll ask andrew about the red light district again a little bit later on but um they, they weren't going in the book so i decided to write a book that was really about the people that i've met the extraordinary people mm -hmm. that i've come across and some of whom i've had quite close relationships with i don't know what you found in ukrainian football but um Football and its media have kind of grown apart. Football and its public have grown apart for various reasons over the last two or three decades, partly because of the wealth of the, of the players, which makes them slightly detached, partly because of um, uh, these and the fact that an autograph is no longer a good enough now. You've got, you, if somebody stops you in the street, you've got to record a film and say you want to marry them or something like that. Um, and, and actually, that's just made famous people or people with any public profile to stay inside they don't want to come out anymore so um you know the media's got stuck in between it's become a pretty hostile media in to a large extent i think in a lot of countries now and so you don't get as close um to the to these amazing people who are managers and players as we used to do and as i was lucky enough to do in the earlier part of my career um you know people like sir Alec ferguson and um Brian Clough and, and Bill Shankly, Sir Kenny Dalgleish and Graham Sooners. So all of these at Gareth Southgate are chapter headings in the book because they're people that I've got to know and, and learn from. You know, and you learn about life as well as football and sport from them. Compete is a way that we don't compete. That what makes them different? They are different. You know, they, they have a different approach to life to the than you and I who never cross the white line, never get, you know, to to feel the scrutiny and the jeopardy that goes with um, being a um, a competitive sports person. So, um, yeah, I mean, my reflections in the book, it is, um, it includes my opinions on all kinds of things from uh, racism to, um, uh, you know, social media and, and so on. Um, but they, they, those are opinions which I've kind of formed through being around these people during my life. So um, some, one review described it as a love letter to football. And that's, I like that. I was really flattered by that. I think if, if you had to ask me in, uh, in a sentence, what was it trying to be? It's that, this, this wonderful game, which has given me my career, um, uh, which I, you know, I've never kicked a ball that's ever mattered. Uh, so I, I was never a player. I've just sat there as a watcher, really describing it and, um, and, and meeting a lot of the people who do make it happen. So that's, that's what the book, I think if you love football, hopefully it'll be a narrative which you'll be able to follow and see a little bit of yourself in as, as you read through it. It's called Not For Me, Clive. It is. <laughs> what's, what was the, what's the story behind the title? The story behind Not For Me, Clive is, uh, it's a nice story really. I know we're not quite sure whether it was Andy Townsend or Ali McCoyst. I, I commentated on the game last night with Ali McCoyst. It is an expression of an opinion about football in the way that football opinion should be. There are so many opinions out there in the world at the moment. People are so judgmental and unforgiving and um, people express opinions and essentially you don't agree wholeheartedly 100% with them. Then they kind of brand you an infidel and cast you into the fiery inferno. And life's really not like that. You know, life's all about shades and opinions and changing your mind from time to time. It's really not a bad thing to do sometimes. And so it's the kind of football opinion where um, if I were to say, uh, I think that Shevchenko should immediately find Rebrov and bring him in into the squad. 
you'd all go, mm, yeah, not for me, Clive. You're entitled to that opinion. Okay, we respect it, but we don't agree with it. It's that kind of opinion. It's, it's a debating kind. And it comes up in commentary from time to time where I sort of say, really should have scored. And Ali will go, well, not for me, Clive. <laughs> Fantastic. Now, uh, Claude, people listening if they want to follow you on the twitter on the social medias yeah just any... Clive Tilsley on twitter and Clive Tilsley on instagram i i don't post an opinion on everything and, ev and everybody because i like i say I, I think twitter's full of those um i mean one of the points i make in the book really is that this is great for us to have a discussion mm -hmm. but i've got a funny feeling shevchenko will never see this you know um i was uh, during the england game yesterday um there were an awful lot of people on twitter i had a quick look at my phone a couple of times you know people saying oh southgate's picked the wrong team and he's got the wrong tactics and etc etc and i actually put a tweet up at half time and saying um lots of opinions on here but i haven't seen southgate look at his phone once i think he's probably <laughs> too busy watching the game and we have got into this kind of <laughs> habit where by we even the best game in the world doesn't hold our attention the fact that we can't not look at our phone for 45 minutes to check what anybody and everybody's saying. And I know as a commentator, particularly as a commentator who's at the moment commentating off a screen rather than off a, mm. in a stadium with a whole field to look at, that if you take your eye off a, off a football match for two seconds, that's, that's when Yarvalenka will cut in from the right and curl one in the top. And you go, what? What's he doing? Oh, he scored! He scored! My fantastic! You see it! You were looking at your phone! Yeah. True? Yeah. So true. So true. So true. Thank you so much for today. We've, we've really okay, and, th and thanks to Andrew who uh, briefed me. Um, and I, I actually was a little sad that because of the nature of the game, there were there was there was some kind of backdrop and background on Ukrainian football and life that I wanted to introduce into the commentary if I could. I didn't in the end. It didn't feel right. I mean, I think if. You know, if, if Ukraine had been 3-0 up or 3-0 down then and the game's drifting away, then um, I think we're nearly 3-0 down. Then you can kind of say, well, you know, in fairness, this is a, a nation which... Uh, and, you know, the story of your nation's not being told. Yeah, I don't quite understand why. Because, um, you know, we've got the world's leaders meeting in the UK at the moment. And, you know, part of your nation's occupied. When did I last see that on the UK news? It's no, this, this is in Europe. These are football teams we're playing against. I mean, did anybody outside of those of us who've done the research know that the reason Ukraine and Russia are not in the same group is because they were kept apart? And um, I, I mean, you might meet in the quarterfinal, <laughs> you know, well, then we'll know about it. And I, I, I did want to introduce some of that last night, but um, it wasn't... Um, it wasn't the right kind of game to do it in. But those backstories are really important to football and um, to put it into some context. And I'm afraid that too many of people watching last night would just see Ukraine. And do you know what? A lot of them would say, isn't that Russia? Yeah, that's, that's as much as we know. And it's up to people like me to enlighten them. No, no it's not. It really isn't. <laughs> Andrew, any final thoughts from you, mate? Yeah, it's been, been a great episode. I think we've got to the sort of the nitty gritty of, you know, what happened last night and very enjoyable to hear a bit more about Clive's career. And yeah, thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure. And maybe I'll see you in the last 16. Absolutely. Thank you, Clive. Uh, Andrew, thanks so much for today. Really enjoyed it. What are your social media handles for any new listeners? 
Zori Londonsk on Instagram and Twitter, and there'll be lots of live updates from the North Macedonia game if you're interested. Ray, over to you, mate. I have to say that that was the recording. You just don't want to end. My social media outlets would be Instagram, Ravik. And thank you to everyone who listened to our, our first episode last week, number six in the charts at the moment. Thank you so much for all the, the support you've given us. I'm, of course, Adam at Ucrafot24. Till next time, take care and stay safe. Goodbye for now. It's head and beast, it's head and beast, it's head and beast.